Merry Christmas. Glad you're all here. Hey, if you haven't turned there already, let's grab our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we'll be um, hunkering down in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 or so. We'll be jumping around as well, but making our home mostly in Luke chapter 2. Uh, so uh, let's pray, and then we'll dive uh, right into our Christmas sermon series, The Gospel According to Christmas Carols, something a little different. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. <clears throat> Father, we ask now that you would be with us as we turn to your word. We're so grateful as we ponder um, the familiar Christmas story. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see it uh, with fresh eyes and an open heart, um, with uh, voices that are willing to sing and worship to you, and hearts that are willing to receive you, and hands that are willing to obey you. We pray that you would teach us about your incarnate Son through the wonderful Christmas carols that we most enjoy. We are so grateful that you have sent him in your mercy and grace, that you have sent us a Savior, Christ the Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. And God's people said, Amen. Well, most of the time for the Thanksgiving holiday season, uh, my family and I are not here. Uh, we had the privilege of being here uh, for, for once and had a great time. But uh, if we're not with my family, we're with uh, my sister's, uh, my wife's family. And uh, there is sort of this unwritten rule um, that uh, my sister-in-law, whose name is Shauna, has for her home during the Thanksgiving season. And that rule is that you cannot play Christmas music until Thanksgiving comes and goes. Now, I don't know if you have that rule or not, but that's sort of an unspoken rule, right? No Christmas music or anything Christmassy until Thanksgiving Day has passed. Well, uh, this Thanksgiving season, uh, we were not in her home. In fact, we were in my home. And so I sort of had the thought that, you know what, it's my house and I make the rules. And so if I want to listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving, then I'm going to. And so I have a confession to make. It was about a week before Thanksgiving. It was Thanksgiving week. And I pulled out my phone and my stereo speaker. And I pulled up Pandora. And I typed in Chris Tomlin holiday music. And it popped up. And we began to listen to Christmas carols before Thanksgiving. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Did any of you join me? Did any of you join me? Oh, wonderful. I'm glad I'm not the only one who started the Christmas season early. Now, uh, we are the true lovers, I think, of the Christmas spirit and season, right? We listen to Christmas carols. Well, yeah, I think you know where we're going, right? What we're going to do this holiday season is we are going to have a sermon series called The Gospel According to Christmas Carols. So what I hope to do is take a look at some of our most uh, beloved Christmas hymns, Christmas carols, and look at them through the lens of, of course, the Scripture. One of the things that I love about Christmas music is not only that it's catchy and sort of familiar, right, music that we've grown up with, but I love Christmas carols, and I hope that you, if you don't already, you will begin to love them more, because most of them, if not many of them, have rich theology and wonderful biblical truth, so that when we stand uh, to sing as a congregation, or that when you throw on Pandora on your phone, uh, in your car, or at your house, and you hear the wonderful carols of Christmas, you don't just... Uh, listen to them, but that it you begin to, to sort of enter into a time of worship and begin to learn about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we are going to begin with one of my favorite Christmas carols, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. So before we actually get into the three main stanzas, I just want to do a quick a story behind the carol. So the, the original 
final words of this beloved Christmas carol were written by a man named Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley in the year 1737. Now you may have heard of the last name Wesley because he had a brother who was, well, a little bit more famous than him, John Wesley. And you may have heard of John Wesley because he's mostly known for being the founder of the United Methodist Church. Well, he and his brother worked together in ministry. John was more the pastor and Charles, well... He was the hymn writer, right? In fact, history tells us that he wrote over 6,500 hymns during his lifetime. That's astounding. 6,500 hymns, he was pumping them out left and right. Now, Hark the Herald was actually uh, originally called something else. In fact, it was originally uh, simply titled A Hymn for Christmas Day. And you can see a copy of the original on the screen behind me. A Hymn for Christmas Day. Day. It contained a whopping 10 stanzas. So can you imagine that, right? Let's sing original congregation and we're going to sing all 10 stanzas of a hymn for Christmas Day. Well, it first appeared in public in 1739, just two years later, and it appeared in a little collection called Hymns and Sacred Poems. And you can see a picture of that on the screen behind me as well. However, The original tune uh, was different. In fact, the familiar tune that we're going to sing to close our service with was not the original tune. In fact, 100 years later, a man by the name of George Whitfield, he was uh, a fellow Brit and a fellow evangelist, sort of pastor, he actually added a different tune. You can see a picture of him on the screen behind me as well. He actually added a different tune, the tune that we are familiar with, and he sort of tweaked the lyrics a bit. And so the, the song that we sing is mostly original, but there has, there has been sort of some change. But he teamed up with a guy by the name of Felix Mendelssohn, who was a great composer, and they together uh, uh, composed this song that we are familiar with today. And within a decade, uh, it, it, it sort of spread like wildfire wildfire, and it became a a most beloved Christmas carol. So a little bit about the song. Let's sort of dive into the three stanzas of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I hope you have your Bible open because we are quickly going to look at Luke chapter 2, verse 13. So stanza number one. Stanza number one I've entitled God's Heavenly Announcement because in most of stanza one, uh, Wesley writes about the angels declaring the birth of Jesus the Savior, which of course is found in Luke chapter two. And so it begins with the announcement and then the stanza closes with the admonition. Uh, Wesley calls all people and all tribes and all nations to sort of join in with the angels in declaring Christ is born. So let's begin with the announcement. It begins like this. Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And so the carol's opening lines, of course, are taken from Luke chapter 2. So let's take a look at that once again, starting in verse 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. See, Wesley rightly picks up on this image that this uh, baby boy, 
that this newborn child is, is no ordinary child, right? But he, in fact, is the newborn king. He begins by saying, hark. Now, we don't typically use that language, right? We don't say, hark, very often. But it simply means, pay attention, listen up, right? And so Wesley is saying, pay attention. Uh, the angels are singing a song. And, well, what do they sing? Well, they sing, in part, glory, Glory to the newborn king. If you want to take a look at verse 11 in Luke chapter 2, we have this familiar imagery that this child is the promised Messiah. He is Israel's anointed king. Verse 10. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is literally the anointed one. See, in the Old Testament, oftentimes Israel's kings were called this. They were called the Anointed One. And so Wesley rightly picks up in his hymn on this imagery that this is no mere baby boy. This is the angelic announcement of a newborn king. I'd like to share with you the words of a, of, of a Brit, a man by the name of Neil Welton. And uh, in this little quotation... He describes how he remembers hearing about the announcement of the birth, well, of of another king, Prince William, all the way back in 1982. He said this, and I quote, I was eight years old, and we were all assembled in the school hall to be told the wonderful news, to celebrate the birth. He says, our headmaster stood proudly at his lectern and announced that a very special baby boy had been born. He explained that this baby boy was was different than all other baby boys because he had been born to rule over us. He explained that this baby boy was different. He had been born to to rule over us. He goes on to say he he was a prince. And one day when he grew up, he was going to be our king. Well, friends, we see here John Wesley celebrating the birth of not just any king, right, but the king of kings. The Lord of Lords, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Well, Wesley in the next line continues to paraphrase this angelic song, this this angelic announcement. So the, the hymn continues, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Of course, this line picks up on the angelic Uh, song, right? Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace on those on whom his favor rests. And the last line here, uh, we see the, the, the purpose, right? In Wesley's mind, uh, why was this uh, baby boy born? Peace on earth and mercy mild. And what will be the result? God and sinners, what church? You say it. Reconciled, right? God and sinners, reconciled. Uh, I think that Wesley inevitably had 2 Corinthians chapter 5 on his mind. Starting in verse 18, Paul writes about this reconciliation between God and man that the birth and life and death and resurrection of Christ has made possible. And so follow along on the screen, if you will. Verse 18, all this is from God, Paul says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He goes on to explain this reconciliation, how God reconciled us to himself through Christ. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, 
not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Well, how can that reconciliation take place? Well, he tells us in verse 21. God made him, speaking of Christ, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, friends, in this passage, uh, sin is sort of pictured as a barrier. Uh, sin is pictured as a, as a wall, if you will, between God and mankind, separating both, uh, us both in this life and ultimately in the life to come. And Jesus is portrayed in Paul's words as the one who sort of reconciles these two warring parties, right? He brings these two parties together. How does he do it? By becoming sin for us, right? By bearing sin before a holy God so that God would not count our sins against us so that we could have the gift of Jesus' perfect righteousness. This image of a barrier makes me think of the Great Berlin Wall, right? The Great Berlin Wall, which of course physically and ideologically divided Berlin from 1961 to 1989. It came to symbolize this, uh, this, this division, this iron curtain, if you will, right, that separated Western and Eastern Europe during the Cold War. And of course, we all remember President Reagan's short but impactful speech, which ended in these words. You could probably say it with me, right? Mr. Gorbachev, what? Tear down this wall, right? Um, I imagine from Paul's writings that on the first uh, Christmas night, that God the Father said to his son, Son, tear down this wall. And he did, did he not? He made reconciliation between God the Father and us available with his life and death and resurrection. And so friends, here's our first application of the day. If you are not a Christian, if you have not been born again, if you are not right with God, then be reconciled to God. If you've never trusted personally in Jesus' perfect life, this righteousness that you need, that you can never attain on your own, that he gives to you as a free gift and his uh, death on the cross to pay for my sins and to pay for your sins, his powerful resurrection to bring us new and eternal life, then heed, my friends, Paul's words. Be reconciled to God. And maybe you're here and you have been. You know that you've been born again. You've trusted in Christ. You are a Christian. Well, there's application for us too, right? In this Christmas carol, right? God and sinners reconcile. What does Paul write? He says that God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, that is we are Christ's, in Paul's words, ambassadors. Listen to this language. As though God were making his appeal through us. Christian, did you hear that? God is making his appeal to the lost world through what? Through us. It as if he is speaking through us, saying to the lost world, through our voice, be reconciled. There is a way back. Your sins have been paid for. Receive the gift of righteousness through faith in Christ. So Christian, will you be the voice of God this holiday season? And so... We see verse 1, it begins, right, with this angelic announcement. It ends with an admonition. 
Wesley continues, Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. And so we move then from stanza one, right? Stanza one is about the heavenly announcement, right? God's heavenly announcement. His his baby boy has been born. But in stanza two, we see God's human appearance as Wesley focuses us on the, the person of Jesus Christ. Who is this baby boy? Who exactly is this newborn king? Well, he tells us in stanza two, which begins with a focus on the divinity of Jesus Christ. Wesley writes, stanza two, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. The first line of stanza two reminds us that Christ is worthy of our worship. Do you see that? He is worthy of our worship. He is by highest heaven adored. That is, is Christ worthy of all worship from those on the earth? Yes, he is. Is he worthy of worship by all the heavenly and angelic hosts? Yes, he is. But then he goes to another level. He says, Christ is even adored by the highest heaven, an image taken from several Old Testament verses. And so we see at the beginning who this newborn king is. He's no earthly king. He's not merely a human king. No, he is worthy of worship. He is Christ, the everlasting Lord. He is the eternal master, right? This sort of reminds us of the, of Luke chapter 2, right? Glory to God in the highest heaven. He is the everlasting Lord. Jesus Christ himself in Revelation 1.8 says this of himself. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus Christ says of himself that I am the beginning and I am the end. I am the eternal one. John, uh, excuse me, the, the author of Hebrews says this of Jesus. He says, Jesus Christ is the say yesterday and today and what church? And forever, right? He is the same. He is the eternal one, the uncreated one. And so we begin then stanza two with an emphasis. Who is this, who is this newborn king? He, he is God. He is divine. But not only that, we see as the, as the stanza continues that, that Wesley emphasizes not only his divinity, but his delivery. Notice, late in time, behold him come. Late in time, behold him come. Offspring of a virgin's womb. I think this, this line, late in time, is, uh, is the idea that from Israel's perspective, they had not heard a prophetic word from God for some 400 years. They had long anticipated the coming of the Messiah. So from that perspective, from Israel's perspective, he was, he was born late in time. However, from God's perspective, was the birth of Jesus Christ late? No, I don't think so. Right? God is, He's never late, right? He's always on time. Galatians 4, 4 tells us this. But, but when the set time, but when the set time had fully come, what happened? God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Notice the next line. Not only did He come at just the right time, but His coming, His birth, well, 
It was nothing short of supernatural. He is, Wesley says, the offspring of a virgin's womb. Of course, picking up on the oft-repeated theme that Christ was born of a virgin. Matthew 1, verse 18, says it this way. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. I am often reminded of the interview that was done by CNN's Larry King. And somebody was, for a change, interviewing him. And this interviewer asked him, hey, if you could interview one person across all of history, who would it be? And do you know who he chose? He said, I would interview Jesus Christ. And of course, then the follow-up question was this, well, what would you ask him if you were able to interview him? To which King answered, and I quote, I would like to ask him if he indeed was virgin born. And he said this, the answer to that question would define history for me. Friends, this is amazing. It comes from an avowed agnostic, right? Um, And yet he recognizes that the reality of the virgin birth of Jesus could, if true, change history, right? And he's right. So we've seen his divinity. We've seen his delivery. And then Wesley moves on to his humility. Uh, Friends, these are uh, my favorite lines of the entire carol. This is why it's in my top three. It goes this way. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate Deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. The imagery and the symmetry and the rhyme in these lines are marvelous, both in its aesthetics and in the truth that it talks about. Wesley says here that Jesus' divinity was, was veiled in part. That the fact that he was fully God was sort of veiled by his humanity, by his flesh. And yet, when you see Jesus, who do you see? God, right? It's beautiful. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Jesus said it this way in John 14, 9. Ponder these words. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Just pause and ponder that for a moment. Jesus says, if you see me in flesh and bone, who have you really seen? You have seen God the Father, right? That is an astounding claim. John says this in his gospel a little bit earlier of Jesus, 118. John says, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who who is Himself God, and in the closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. Wesley goes on to speak then about how Jesus was pleased as a human being to dwell among us. Therefore, we can call Him what? Emmanuel. Matthew 1.23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call Him Emmanuel, which, which means God with us. And so we've seen in stanza one, 
Hark the herald angels sing, right? God's heavenly announcement. In stanza two, we've seen God's human appearance. We've seen that this newborn king is divine. We've seen that his birth is supernatural. We've seen his humility in his incarnation. But stanza three, in stanza three, we see God's holy ambition. God's holy ambition. In other words, what, for what reason did God send his son? What are the purposes behind Advent? I see three in stanza three. And the first is to bring peace and righteousness. To bring peace and righteousness. The stanza, the third stanza begins this way. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of of righteousness. This this sort of brings us back of course to Isaiah 9:6, this image of Jesus as the prince of peace. Isaiah predicts in Isaiah 9:6 these words. He says this, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And so Wesley picks up this biblical image, right? Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. He envisions the the advent of Christ as the coming of a king who will establish a rule and a reign of peace, right? There was a, a little girl one time and she was diligently at home at her desk working on a on a school assignment. And her father came in and said, "Honey, what are you working on?" And she said, well, I'm working on a, on this homework assignment. And he said, well, what is it? What are you working on? And uh, she said, oh, well, I'm, I'm working on a, on a plan for world peace. Plan for world peace. And his father sort of said, well, that's kind of a big job for a little girl, isn't it? And he said, oh, don't worry, Daddy. There are two other little girls in my class, and they're working with me, right? No problem. Friends, someday we will have world peace in the truest sense. Because Christ the King, that baby born so many years ago back in Bethlehem, will return to the earth physically. And he will rule. And he will reign. And as Isaiah predicts, the government will be upon his shoulders. And it will be a worldwide government with one king. And it will be him. And there, my friends, he will be the Prince of Peace. But not only is is he the Prince of Peace, but... He says, hail the son of righteousness. And yes, you read that right. It's not S-O-N. Did you notice? It's S-U-N. The son of righteousness. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from Malachi 4.2, where Malachi predicts uh, the state, the sort of the eternal state of the righteous. He says, but for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And so Wesley looks forward to the second coming of Christ. And he says, this baby boy who is born a king is the king of kings. And he will usher in a rule of peace and a rule of righteousness. But not only that, but there's a second purpose, to bring light and life, right? The, the carol continues, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. We have to go to John chapter 1, right? Jesus in his, in his, in his coming brings light and life. And so John chapter 1 verse 9, John speaks of the advent of Christ. He says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. 
He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, John says, yet to those who did receive him, and he clarifies, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Born of God. And so we see here this wonderful image, right? Light and life. When Jesus comes into the world, he offers eternal life. And yet John goes on to write that most people run from the light. They hide from the light because they love the darkness more than they love the light. But there's a third purpose. Not only does uh, Jesus' coming uh, look forward to a reign of peace and of righteousness, not only does his advent bring the hope of eternal life to all who would trust in him, but thirdly, his coming brings rebirth and resurrection. Notice the song ends by saying this, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. And so, friends, Jesus came so that we might have rebirth. This speaks to what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, 3. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are what? Unless they are born Again, right? There is a spiritual rebirth that must take place if you want to come into the kingdom of Christ. But not only did, did Jesus come to offer us uh, a rebirth that we could be new people, new creatures, Paul says, but ultimately he came so that he would raise Christians from the dead. Did you see that? Born, that, born to raise the sons of earth. See, the scripture teaches that if you are a Christian, if you have been born again, that Christ upon his return will resurrect your dead body into a life, a glorified body, life eternal with him. Romans 6.5 teaches this. For if we have been united with him in his death, in a death like his, we certainly also will be united with him in a resurrection like his. Well, to, to cap it off, one old pastor summed it up this way. He said, this, this is what this verse teaches. Jesus was born so that we can be born again. And he came to earth so that we could go to heaven. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And then we'll sing this song afresh to close our time. Hark the herald, angels sing. So if you would pray with me. Father, we pray now that you would teach us through the theology of this rich hymn that is reflective of your word. We pray that we would sing afresh with eyes anew of the glories of your Son, Jesus. We love you, we thank you, we praise you, and we're grateful for what we've learned today of Christ. Lord, cause our hearts to burn with love for him, we pray. In Christ's name, and God's people said.